are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is sponsored by Great Northern Bow Company. At Great Northern Bow Company, they design and build every bow with you in mind and with respect for the long and noble hunter-gatherer lineage we are all connected to. They build hunting bows, bows designed to make you the very best bow hunter you can be. How do they do it? By paying attention to what really matters in a bow. Stability, smoothness of draw, reliability, performance, refined design, and by using carefully selected materials. Their bows have an understated beauty and refinement of appearance that will make them hold their appeal for a lifetime. And they still build their bows one at a time by hand. So consider making your next custom bow a great northern bow. And in the meantime, be sure to check out their website at gnbco.com. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel. And tonight we're giving Nick a little bit of a break. He had some activities going on. And I think we mentioned in the uh, the episode from this past week that we'd had some technical challenges with uh, the guests that I've had, I have on with me tonight. And we really wanted to go ahead and get this thing uh, uh, on record, so to speak. So David and I are sitting down tonight. So joining me tonight is Mr. David Tetzloff. I hope I pronounced that right, David. You got it. Awesome. Uh, David and I met, and Nick, of course, we all three met uh, back in the um, uh, I guess that was June at the uh, Compton's Rendezvous up in up in Michigan, we had some some fantastic conversations. I don't know how long we talked, man, but it was it was longer than this podcast would be, wouldn't you say? Well, we just kept firing off with different <laughs> comments, and I was learning stuff, and you guys were learning stuff. So we, yeah, we had a good chat. It was a lot of fun, and and I think Dick and I both kind of looked at each other. One of the times you you roamed off to go visit one of the other vendors or something, and uh, we both looked at each other and said, "Man, we got to get him on the show." So it took us a took us a few months to make it happen, but here we are. I'm 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 all excited about it, despite our challenges last week. Well, I've been looking forward to it. I appreciate the opportunity. So, David, to to give a little bit of background uh, about you for those that that don't know from a, a traditional bow hunting aspect of things, um, you you've been involved with uh, traditional bow hunter magazine. I know you've been involved in some other publications. I'll I'll kind of let you talk to that a little bit. Um, but I know you were you were you were sort of recognized that you were the resident book reviewer of traditional bow hunter magazine. And I know you've done a bunch of of book reviews for them, but you've also done some some feature articles as well, right? That's true. The uh, we can backtrack, Steve, to how I fell into it, and it just goes to show you never know what's going to happen and what the chain reaction is going to be when you do something. So the whole book review thing started with our state club, Traditional Bow Hunters of Florida. And when I started helping out with our uh, three-time-a-year magazine, uh, Stickbow News, um, I became like a, a ghost editor. Um, Jay Campbell, who we know well, um, Jay edited for a long time. And then when I started working with um, one of the past presidents, John McCormick, uh, my third term, John and I were working on the magazine together. And I thought, what, what haven't we done? So it just on a whim, I started doing book reviews and DVD reviews just to add content to the magazine. And Don Thomas, who we all know well, um, I had actually, Don had come twice to uh, talk to TBOF. And 
by coming to visit us and be one of our speakers, you become a de facto member of the club. So then Don would start receiving our three time a year magazine. And uh, one day I got an email from him and he said, I want to run your review of Jim Corbett's Man Eaters of Kumau, which uh, you, me and Nick started talking about at, at Compton. Right. And uh, I went, wow, because if you know the publishing world, if it appears somewhere, it's not going to appear somewhere else. But Don disliked the review I did of this book on man-eating tigers and leopards so much, he wanted to run it in TBM, and I was just floored. I'd done a couple features before that um, for Don and TJ, but to have a book review snatched from our state club and go national was it was an icebreaker for me. And then I did another one, another one. I actually I did Jay's book, Longbow. They asked me to do that. And so I did a few bits and pieces here and there. And then I remember distinctly in December of 2012, I got an email from Don and he said, TJ and I have been talking about it and we want to be like some of the other big magazines and have one consistent voice for our book reviews. Would you like the job? As if I was going to say no. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And then you, like I said, you, you, you did some other articles on top of that, right? Yeah, I've done five or six features, not as many as a lot of guys do, because the book review keeps me really busy because, um, you know, I like to stalk and ghost other things to see how people are doing reviews. And, you know, I've seen some really good reviews in the outdoor community. And, you know, I would even look at non-outdoor book reviews, just looking things up online. And sometimes you wonder if the person just read the, the book jacket and wrote it because there was like not a lot of depth or content. So, you know, it's for the folks out there that, that do read my column. I read every book cover to cover. So it's, it's, it's time consuming, but I, I enjoy reading and I enjoy writing. So for me, it's the perfect job, but I also like features. I'm playing with the new one now. We'll see if it goes anywhere or not, but, uh, yeah, I've written bits and pieces and, um, I've been in bow hunter twice and I've been, um, so Kurt Wells picked me up twice in Bowhunter, and then I've been in Peterson's Bowhunting three times. Christian Berg picked up three pieces for me for Peterson's, which which is good to you know appear in several different places and work with different people. Sure, absolutely. And I'll be honest, I I used to I used to subscribe to every every Bowhunting and and Whitetail magazine under the under the sun just about. And I'll be honest, I just I don't I, I found myself not having the time to read them, and they they pile up, and the next thing I know, my wife is throwing them at me or throwing them in the trash, and I I just kind of stop subscribing, and a lot of my content I get online. I have been thinking about selecting a few select magazines to go back to, uh, but I haven't really decided yet. Um, and you know, you mentioned the the book review um, and and reading others' book reviews and. I've written a couple, not many, um, on my website, not that I've published anywhere. These were really just on the, the simply traditional website. And, you know, I was always, I always struggled with writing a good book review without giving away too much information and, and spoilers, so to speak. It just, it, I always felt uncomfortable doing it because I just didn't want to give away too much information and, and ruin the experience for the reader. Do you do you deal with that at all? Every single time, Steve. Uh, you've got to you've got to have you've got to throw out some teasers and some hooks um, because 
Compton was really, um, I'm so glad that Dennis and the board invited me because it gave me opportunity not only to you know, represent the club as, as the new magazine editor, but um, also I was running into a lot of folks who, who do read my stuff. And um, they came up and, you know, I've had a number of people say, you know, I bought stuff based on your review. So uh, that's gratifying that people reading it and then they're you know, inspired to go out and, 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 and order a book off Amazon or somebody's website or, or whatever. So it's, it's, it's gotta be enough to get somebody's interest. So you've got to give a little bit away, but not too much away. But mm -hmm. I've, I've found that when, when I'm reading, um, it's for me, the struggle is I'm enjoying these books, but then I have to slow down and say, you need to start making notes, Bubba, because that's what your job is. So right. um, a lot of times I'm sticking in post-its or if it's a book I know I'm going to keep, I might, you know, use a yellow highlighter or something. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. It's, it's finding that balance, Steve, between getting enough of the reader's interest without giving away too much of the content. But you've, you know, usually if you read my stuff, I'm going to throw out some real hooks, some real bait in there because I, I want people to buy these books. I, I never is, you know, I like the internet. I love listening to podcasts. That's, that's a thing I've started doing. Um, because my new, my, re, my retirement gig is this real estate photography. So I literally will spend hours at my computer editing pictures for sending to the realtor. So now what I do is I just bring up a different podcast every time and I'm listening as I'm fooling around with these pictures. So it's, uh, it's, it's finding that, that balance in those, in those reviews to get people to want to do that and, and not give up the written word, despite how cool the internet is. Sure. And I, and I, and I want to be clear, I still read a lot. Um, but I tend to focus more on, on books and, and I read, God, I read everything from I'm a I'm a big history buff, so I do read a lot of of history, um, factual novels. Uh, I guess you'd call them novels, but anyway, um, I also read a lot of of hunting and mostly bow hunting. Um, and I would say, you know, the last few years, the majority of that's also been around traditional bow hunting. And I even read uh, some some fantasy fiction stuff that that I really enjoy. So I read a lot. It's just with the magazines. You know, if I'm if I'm honest, I would they would come in the mailbox. I would I would look at the table of contents. If it was anything that just immediately jumped out at me, I might read that. Then I'd set it down, planning to go back to it and read the rest of it, and I just never make it. So it, it's more of a focus thing, I think, for me than than anything else. Well, what I found is, you know, I want to become a better writer. I'm I'm fascinated with the process and you know how you take it from your mind, convey your story use the language uh, the best that you can and then, you know, get that and get that into print. Um, so, you know, the reason I subscribe, you know, to your point, I actually a couple guys at Compton I had this conversation with um, said, yeah, we're getting, I'm getting less magazines, you know, than I used to, um, which, you know, everybody, as you say, you make those choices of, you know, what you want to subscribe to and what you don't. But for me, trying to become a better writer, I have to subscribe to something twofold. I want to be entertained, but I want to learn how to write by reading the pieces in the content. So, you know, I've, I've subscribed to Gray Sporting Journal for years and those writers are just fabulous. There's fabulous, you know, Don, Don's on the masthead. So, you know, I'm going to be interested anytime I see Don in there, but all their writers are just absolutely fabulous. And, you know, I emailed Don one day and I said, you know, besides Gray's, you know, what else, what else is going to teach me how to write? And he said, 
you know, get sporting classics. You know, it's got a little bit of a Southern flavor. You know, it's published in the Carolinas, but, you know, they go nationally, internationally. So Grace, uh, besides Grace, Sporting Classics is another one that I'm really enjoying, uh, you know, for the entertainment value. And also those guys that are in there are awesome writers as well. So, you know, when I'm subscribing to something now, it's it's got to be, I've got to get both of those out of, I've got to tease both those out of a magazine, the content, the entertainment, but teach me something. So I want to, you mentioned Compton's a couple of times and I do, I do want to get into that and, and kind of how that came about and really, you know, what your role is now, uh, with, with Compton's. But before we, before we jump ahead, I got to pin you down on something. Um, and I'll, I will narrow it down to just traditional bow hunting, but, um, What's been, or if I ask you today what your favorite traditional bow hunting um, book is, could you give me an answer? Wow. Yeah, I will. It's, it's uh, Don's The Double Helix. That's his book on Africa. And I've probably read The Double Helix four times, easily, uh, because I love Africa. I'm fascinated with the continent. I'm fascinated with the people. Um, you know, I'm not an African expert. I've only been five times. But uh, I just, I enjoy every time that I've been there and the things that you do and the things that you learn and the people that you interact with. So I think that's probably my favorite just because, you know, I'm, I'm an unabashed fan of Don's writing and you got Don and you got Don writing about Africa. So to me, that, that, that's a win-win right there. But, you know, there's, there's other ones that, you know, um, David Peterson's Going Trad. I, I like the way Dave writes. Um, we've, you know, I've been kind of email friends off and on with Dave. We had a long conversation a couple summers ago um, when I was reviewing uh, his DVD, and I watched the DVD, uh, which we don't do many of at Traditional Bowhunter, but they gave me the green light for uh, doing Dave's DVD. So there were some questions I had that he cleared up, and we just had a lovely phone conversation. But uh, I, I like Dave Peterson's style of writing as well. So the good news is for me, and and I, you know, I guess for our listeners as well, I've got I've got two books to read. I have not read either one of those, so I just made a note of it. I'll I'll be I'll be picking one of those up or both of those up and and giving those a read here very soon. Very soon. Um, not sure how I've missed them, but I have not read those. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, so let's let's talk about Compton's a little bit. Um, so you have got a, and I don't know how new, but a fairly new role with Compton's. So you know, why don't why don't you kind of tell everybody about that and and let's get a little background on how that came to pass. Actually, we just put my third issue as editor to bed, so people get be getting um, in their mailbox in, in August. But um, I was a member of Compton early, you know, right after the organization formed and they started advertising memberships. I joined, um, and I probably joined PBS just a little before that as associate, you know, I think in 98 or 99, right after I got my, you know, first deer, I joined PBS because that's a criteria. It's taking one game animal. And I was a member of both for years. And then in 2012, I moved jobs. We moved upstate and my memberships kind of fell off and I got busy with stuff. And then, you know, seven years later, it hit me. I said to myself, you know, you've just been saying for years, you're not going to slack. You're going to, you know, rejoin. So finally last year, I rejoined Compton and PBS. And, um, when I saw in, in Compton that they put out a request for help with the magazine, and that's basically was, was help. So I didn't know quite what it was. 
So this is last summer. So um, I had sent Dennis Harper, our president, an email and said, you know, I'm interested. This is, you know, kind of, a, you know, written for TBM, some other magazines. I, you know, kind of co-edited our Florida magazine. And Dennis and I had a nice conversation. He goes, okay, appreciate your time, Dave. I'll get back with you. Three, four days later, said, I talked to the board. We agree you're the new editor. So it wasn't really helping. It was doing it. So um, I was pleased and also, you know, bit off a chunk because it's, uh, you know, editing that's a step up from, you know, our little Florida magazine. But it's really a, a, it's a group effort to the point that, you know, everything now comes through me. And I, you know, put my eye and my computer on, on everything that comes through. Um, but we've got a great content person um, in Colorado, Roberta. And so when I get done with my part of it, I kick it off to her. And she's the one that takes all these different components and makes it pretty, sends it back. I look at it. If there's anything I catch make a note of it, send it back to her. And then the next step is I kick it out to, you know, for the members on the board who then put their eyes on it. And then they green light, have questions, sort that out, goes back to her and she gets it off to the printer. So it's kind of the quick and dirty how, how that happens in the magazine end of it. So I, I have submitted articles in the past to um, Compton's. I need to get back to that. Uh, I'll be honest, I was on a, a pretty good street there for a while between uh, articles I was submitting uh, each quarter to Michigan Longbow Association, uh, which is one of the organizations that, that I belong to that I just really love, um, and and was trying to submit articles to um, Walk in the Woods as well. Um, I, I actually met one commitment I had to submit one article for each uh, quarter for Michigan Longbow in a year, and I said I was going to do that with uh, Compton's and I, I fell off the wagon. So I got to get back on that. So uh, hopefully you'll be seeing something from me sometime in the next, you know, three to six months. I just, I've got to get my, I, I will front one. I've got to find and make the time, but I've got to, I have to actually kind of have be inspired to find something to write about. And I, uh, if I just try to sit and think of something to write about, it never comes. I just can't do it. It just, I have to have the, the the idea hit me so to speak and then and then build whatever I want to write around that but I'll I'll get back to it look forward to it so with that said let's let's talk a little bit I mean I I'll be honest I want to make sure I save enough time to really get into some of the the discussions that you know me you and Nick had while we're at Compton's because I think it's it's really really unique back background and backstory you've got but from a from a hunting perspective. You know how did how did you get started in hunting? Is this something you you've done since you were a kid? And did you know did you start out hunting with traditional gear? Or is it something that you um, aspire to or, or move towards as you as you got older? Well, I do not come from a hunting family, so this is something I picked up as an adult. Um, I wrote a piece for a traditional bow hunter some years back called Late Bloomer because that's absolutely what I am, but. When we were kids, we were, you know, my generation, you know, I'm going to be 57 this year. We were outdoors. You, you, it was hard to keep us inside, you mm-hmm. know, and we were, you know, you get turned loose and you're, could be gone all day and then you're home by dinner time. 
So, you know, we did everything. I mean, we threw knives, we made spears, we, you know, we like you know, a lot of us of a certain age, we have those green shake spear bows and, you know, cruddy little target arrows. And, you know, when my dad saw we had, us kids had an interest in it, you know, he brought some hay bales home from, from the zoo. So we had a little archery range in the backyard you know, through a bullseye targets. And then I think we were kind of, you know, 14 year old innovators because we, I think we, we were 2d archers, you know, there weren't 3d targets in the seventies. So, um, you know, me and my buddy, um, uh, he's now Dr. Paul Pfeiffer up in Toledo, but, uh, we took, uh, paper garbage bags and stuffed them full of newspaper and drew animals on the outside of them. And then there was a place in our neighborhood. It was kind of a big wooded lot. It was almost an, it was an island actually, uh, connected to our neighborhood up at where we spent our summers in Ohio up at Cedar Point. And, uh, so we kind of set these around the woods and, and walked from paper sack to paper sack and shot the animals on them. Something that we came up with for, for a variety. But, you know, we had the little green fiberglass bows for a while, and then we walked into a big uh, department store in, in Sandusky, Ohio, and, you know, department stores, you know, had a decent outdoor section. And, you know, here are these, you know, they had the old, you know, when compounds were, you know, in the mid-70s, and, you know, a lot of them still had, they had four pulleys on them, and we looked at those and thought, you know, those look weird. But then right next to them were these, you know, beautiful Kodiaks and Grizzlies and it, you know, I think Paul, my first bow was a, a 45 pound bear grizzly and Paul bought a, a black panther, which he sold and regrets it. He wish he had that black panther bow back. But uh, then we felt like we were really archers because we were shooting bear bows, just like, you know, Fred Bear was on TV. But a couple of years after that, I got hardcore into skateboarding and I lived on a skateboard for four years. That's all I did after school. And when I wasn't working, you know, at my parents zoo, I lived on a skateboard. So I really didn't pick up a bow again until my thirties until 1994. And, uh, Paul had just moved back from Alaska. He bought a vet practice in Toledo and he didn't even hunt when he was in Alaska. He just was, he was so busy working out there. And then when he got back to Ohio, um, the guy he bought out was a bow hunter and made his own bows and actually you know, made a bow for Paul when he sold the practice to him. So it was a combination between Paul coming back, you know, my best buddy and him getting into hunting and bows again and us having this conversation and also about the same time I had gone to a, a damn Yankees concert, which was Ted Nugent super oh, yeah. group with Tommy Shaw and Jack blades, Michael Cardelloni. And, um, at one of those concerts at, you know, when you left, there's a table and a stack of Ted Nugent's catalogs. So, you know, between Paul getting back into archery and, you know, seeing that Ted Nugent archery catalog is kind of this little thing that all kind of those two things came together and just reignited that spark. But, you know, I, I, I couldn't even remember where my old bow was. So we, um, that fall of 94, Paul and I took a trip up over the uh, Michigan line, over the Ohio line into Michigan and, and went to uh, Gilson's Hardware there in Blissfield, Michigan. And ironically, now there's a Cabela's about 10 miles up the road from there too. But uh, at the time there wasn't. So we walked in and, um, you know, we're looking at all these compound bows and they had a whole bunch of Jeffrey recurves, but I just, um, I've been recently divorced and I was paying child support and alimony and there was no money for one of these beautiful Jeffrey recurves. But the owner of the shop, Keith said, I've got this old, you know, late model Hoyt compound. I'll give it to you for 180 bucks. 
So that's what I walked out with was a compound not meaning to, but that's all I could afford at the time. Sure. So I shot that for a while and then finally saved up. So my first custom um, bow was a uh, Dan Quillian recurve um, made there in Athens, Georgia. And I didn't know Dan Quillian, but uh, a couple years after I bought that bow, his son Didi used to come down to TBOF and shoot the spring shoot. So I ended up shooting. Um, he was in our group one day. But um, Dan Quillian um, wrote this really good article that was in TBM. And it was just a realistic look at hunting and what the hunter and the deer goes through. It was called Deer Don't Die in Bed. And it was a great article. And it was just the, it was the real world of the outdoors. There's no Bambi endings to all this stuff. Right. So, um, I was just thought that was a great article. I'd remembered it. And so when, when Dan was still alive, you know, I, I called him up at the shop. And I asked for permission to use that and just a great man and immediately granted it. But we got to chatting and it was interesting that he was doing deer biology in the sixties and was one of the early adopters of the Palmer tranquilizer dart system. And my dad was one of the first people to play with it in sixties as well. So that made that immediate connection. So we just, we'd had this great conversation. So, um, so I shot the, that bow for a while and then I ended up getting a Jeffrey recurve and shot my first hog with that. And then I shot traditional for 10 years. And then I, in 07, I had this meltdown, complete meltdown. And, you know, looking back as we all do, you know, hindsight's 2020, I just should have got some good coaching, but I just walked away and shot a compound for a number of years. And then, you know, between Africa and hogs and deer, I took 20 animals with the compound. I thought, that's enough. I'm done. I'm going to go back to trad. That's where my heart is. My friends would all say, you're not into this. You're a trad guy. I'm like, I know, I know. So that's kind of how I came full circle. So it's kind of interesting that I, one of the pieces I had in Peterson's was changing horses. Because you see so many people that, you know, there's been so many articles, you know, how they went from trad to compound. So I wrote the reverse. And Christian thought it was a neat idea and picked the story up. And then after I had my whole, you know, another epitome, I actually wrote one in TBM called There and Back that Don liked the idea of here's where I was, there's where I went, and now I'm back. Right. Well, and I'll be honest, and we've talked about this before, and it's kind of funny, you know, how things go sometimes on the podcast. But, you know, my my father gave me my first bow. He was, wasn't a hunter. And I've, I've said this before on the podcast. This isn't anything new. Um, you know, he went and and tried to surprise me he went to talk to a a, a bow uh, archery shop and you know they sent him home with a compound that's what everybody was shooting this would have been back in you know 80 uh 83 or 84 um and i shot that bow for oh god i don't i don't know how long much longer than i probably should have because i wanted to take my first whitetail with a bow um and i i finally did anyway years later got into the you know the speed thing as far as chasing speed with a, a compound and and got rid of that bow and uh ultimately almost almost 20 years ago now i i switched back over to or I switched to trad i had played around with some some recurs and so forth when you know when in my in my late teens early 20s but nothing really serious 
Uh, just, you know, it was saw one, picked it up, shot it a few times and moved on. Um, so I don't have that back and forth uh, aspect, but I have uh, said something on the, I think it was on the podcast a few weeks ago, but I'd love to just find one of those old Darton SL50s, which is what my dad got me, just to just to play around with it again. I don't know. I don't think I'll hunt with it or anything like that. But one, I'd like to actually shoot one through a chronograph with the arrows that I hunt with now, um, and then compare it to my 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 hunting longbows. And I'm gonna bet there's very little difference in the speed. Um, from those old wheel compounds with the heavy arrows and so forth that I that I hunt with. I just, I'm curious more than anything else. Anyway, where I'm going with this, then I get an email from a, a listener who heard that and had one in there uh, sitting in a closet somewhere and told me if, you know, if I wanted to pay them to ship it to me, they'd just send it to me so I'd have one, which I thought was really cool. Neat, neat. And I've got, I've gun hunted a little bit, so, you know, I've got nothing against gun hunting, but for me it was uh, kind of a social thing because, um, here in Florida, this is one of the questions that when I was uh, president of TVOF, I would get a lot is people that, uh, you know, just moved to the state. How do I start hunting in Florida? Florida is complicated because, you know, in other states have it too, but a lot of our areas are quota hunts, uh, either for the whole season or for the first couple of weeks where you've got to figure out the system and how to apply, um, you know, whether it be for, you know, archery or muzzleloader or, or uh, modern, modern gun. So, you know, I would help a lot of people, you know, start to learn to navigate this, this system here to Florida. But uh, when I was in South Florida, um, our crew would apply every year for this gun hunt about an hour up the road. And, um, you know, I would just go every year and um, a couple of them, you know, scouted it more than me uh, would give me, you know, here's a good spot. And I'd end up shooting a better deer than them and chapping their hide. It's just, you know, it's just by accident, <laughs> but I'll, I'll take it, you know. Right. I mean, one of my one of my best mornings in the woods, you know. Even though I'm just I'm not a gun hunter, I don't have a lot of interest. Is, you know, my my best Florida deer, and you know, for South Florida, 150 pound eight points a big deer, and uh, within five minutes, I had a 150 pound eight point and a 205 pound boar hog with three inch cutters on the ground. It was just a you know gun or not. It was a nice morning. And I'll be honest, I don't I I've not gun hunted in many years, and and I've said this before too. I I've got nothing against gun hunting. It just it doesn't light a fire in me anymore, so I don't do it. Um, but definitely have nothing, you know, nothing against anybody that wants to gun hunt. I, I enjoyed it for many years, and yeah, I guess it's possible one day I could get the, the itch to 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 you know hunt with a gun again, or at least you know I've talked about hunting with black powder. But uh, once I once I took my first animal with a longbow, man, I was just I was hooked hard. <laughs> so I have a hard time I have a hard time going going back to anything else. Um, but David, I'll be honest, I do want to, I want to make sure we get into, uh, some of this, this next little batch of content here, cause this was something that I know kept, um, both myself and, and Nick just, just mesmerized when we were sitting there listening to you at Compton's and that's your, your background. Uh, and I'm gonna let you just tell all of it, but your background with, with, with animals, not from a hunting perspective, but from, a um, I don't know. I guess what would you call it? I'll let you go into that because it's really interesting. Well, I think what what sparked that when we were talking at your guys' booth up Compton was, um, you know, we were we were talking about movies. Movies went into books and so forth. And um, I remember Nick went 
back that night and uh, downloaded Jim Corbett's Man Eaters of Kamau. And I saw him the next day. And he's like, I started reading that right away. It's incredible. I was like, I told you. I told you. Oh. Jim Jim Corbett will keep you up at night. But I think what started the whole cat thing when we were chatting was talking about the ghost in the darkness, which um, one of my very best friends trained. They used five lines in the movie, and, and my friend trained two of them. So that, that's kind of what I think ignited the whole cat thing uh, when we were chatting up there in, in Michigan. But, uh, you know, my friend trained a lot of movie animals. But um, from my aspect, um, I would get calls. And these the agents and producers, they'll make a call looking for animals. So I got a call. Ghost in Darkness came out in 96. So it would have been, you know, late 94, 95. I get a call at my office. Um you got lions, you got train lions. Yeah, I do. But for me, it's my cats all have their claws and cats with claws do not go on movie sets. So I knew something was up. And then when my friend, you know, let me know a few months later, he got the gig. I was like, okay, I knew they were up to something there. Now I know what they were after. It was the same when they made the first live action jungle book in the nineties. Um, I got a call. Do you have black leopards? It's like, yeah, I have six, but, uh, are they trained? Absolutely. They have claws. Yep. You know, cats with claws don't go on movie sets. But, you know, I've been exposed in bits and pieces and, you know, I've been around some TV, some little bit of movie filming here and there in Florida. Um, we actually had a movie uh, called Gone Fishing. It went out of the theaters with real fast. It was filmed all in South Florida, but they did a little bit at the zoo with that one. Um, done some filming for uh, some support work for when uh, Boyd Matson was the host of Nat Geo. And uh, we did some snake stuff for that. And uh, we also had one of the uh, biologists who had their own show on Animal Planet um, at the park. But it's interesting working around this because uh, when you watch on the TV, you don't realize how scripted these shows are. I mean, there's a producer and they're telling, basically telling the host what to say. So I found, you know, I like working around that and to see what goes on. It's kind of fascinating. So... How 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 long have you been, um, or how long were you around the big cats from a perspective of of raising them, training them, taking care of them, et cetera? Well, to backtrack in the family, actually, my my mom we're editing in her memoir right now. Uh, my dad never wrote his own book; um, he should have. <clears throat> There's a little bit about my dad's history. Um, in '94, a book came out. Um, about me mainly, but more of my family and my friends called Living with Big Cats. I think there's still some copies out on Amazon. But uh, my dad, um, this I had these, you know, for all the Michigan folks up there, it was an immediate icebreaker that my dad was uh, born and raised in Kalamazoo. And he got into the animal business because by the time he was 16, he had 250 snakes in the basement. So, you know, being afraid of snakes, this is, is not in my DNA. You know, this, I don't have a problem at all with them. But uh, my dad eventually uh, was in Western Michigan University. Uh, he got a call from Frank Buck, who was uh, almost a matinee idol of the time. Um, he would import a lot of these animals from Southeast Asia. And my dad went to work with him at his compound Long Island. And then from that, he went down and uh, worked on uh, Tarzan Finds a Son, where they were filming in Silver Spring. So that's how my dad got into the business and eventually got his own collection of animals and worked in uh, 
small amusement parks in northern Ohio, Puritan Springs, Chippewa Lake, and then eventually in 64, uh, we got the contract. Um, and we were 30 years at Cedar Point Amusement Park, which is, if you've never been there, it's, you know, it's a huge 365-acre amazement park, they call it, and it is. So we were there 30 years until we voluntarily left in 94 just to focus our full-time efforts in Florida. But working around the cats is just something I've been exposed to my whole life. You know, I wrestled my first lion cub when I was, you know, three years old. But I started working part-time when I was 14 and after school and then full-time in the summers. And I started actually training cats. My parents gave me my first four leopards in, uh, when I was um, actually my senior year in high school. And they said, here's some cats, see what you can do. And I did okay. And they said, okay, here's some more. So eventually four leopards turned into 17. So at one time wow. we had, <laughs> we had the lar- one of the largest leopard acts ever trained. Um, only Gunther Gable Williams and Alfred Court. Um, and then my friend Jim Club, you know, had that many or more cats in the cage and um, you know, it is a rush, you know, I, I won't deny it, you know, being, you know, the whole zoo thing, I can take or leave, you know, there's a zillion people in the zoo business and, um, you know, for that end of it becomes passe, but, um, working in the arena with big cats, um, because then you've got, you've got to have a relationship, you know, a zookeeper, basically the animals know who the zookeeper is. The zookeeper shows up and, you know, they've got the enrichment, which means giving the animals something to do. They've got the food and do a little opera conditioning, but it is just not the same as actually being physically in with the animal and having that relationship. And also, you know, sometimes things go south and you need stitches, but you know, anytime you get hurt or the cats fight or whatever, and you've got to break it up, it's, you made the call, you know, the stuff doesn't happen on accident. You made an elected decision to build a show, build a relationship, and it's it's all it's all your responsibility in the end. So I real I really just train leopards for me. I've always loved leopards, favorite animal. Um, they've just they're so different than the other cats. So smart, so intuitive, so fast. You know, leopards can change direction in midair. They can throw their voice. You know, you know I'd read this. This is just really weird, Steve. They the leopard can throw their voice. And I read it in a book, and I'm like, I don't know about that. So one night at Cedar Point, it was about closing time, and uh, we have these tall wooden chairs that we could just sit and keep an eye on the public and the animals, because in any given day, we could do between two and 20,000 people. So you've got to get up so you can keep an eye on everything, because we had a three- to five-acre complex there. So I was just sitting there in this chair after a long day, and just watching the cats and the few people that were left you know, filtering out, and... I heard a leopard behind me and there was no cage behind me. It was across the path on the other side. So they can do it. It's pretty wild. I imagine that that probably caught your attention pretty quick too, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, because it just is something that I knew where the cats were, but it's, you know, they, they can do that. But, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen leopards in the wild and, you know, that's the penultimate, you know, when you see the animals in, in their natural habitat and, and uh, I was in South Africa in 2011 with my oldest son, um, Sasha James, who people that know cats know Sasha Seymour. If you have not read Sasha Seymour's book, Taguero, that's high adventure. Um, he hunted cattle killing and manning jaguars, either a longbow or a spear, sometimes a rifle. But um, yeah, Taguero 
is an incredible book. So I'd always like that name, Sasha, and it's almost a ver uh, Russian version of Alexander. So my firstborn son, my wife, my first wife and I, Melinda, decided we didn't want a regular name. So we gave him the name Sasha and we named him James for his middle name. If he didn't like to use Sasha, named him James after my trainer friend in England, Jim Club. But uh, that uh, we were in a, that's the difference between South Africa and East Africa. East Africa is where most people go for their, you know, tourist safari Serengeti experience. And it is, it is a wonderful experience. And you see a lot more animals. In South Africa, it's almost like hunting. You've got to go out and look for them. It's not quite so obvious. So we were in this concession inside Kruger National Park. And we were driving out one morning. And the difference between is the Jeeps are open in South Africa. East Africa, it's enclosed. If you want to take photos, you can pop the roof back and actually take your shoes off and stand on the seat to photograph animals. In South Africa, you're in these three-tier open Jeeps, and there's nothing between you and the animals but the clear blue sky. So because there is that extra element, the guides in South Africa carry a rifle. So our guide, Rika, had a 458 across the dash. And they get trained, and they, every six months, the guides in South Africa have to reestablish their training. And they don't, it's not an, uh, how good you are at 100 yards, it's can you hit a moving target at 10 to 15 yards, because that's when it's going to hit the fan when you're that close to animals in an open Jeep. So that's how they train for that stuff. So we are driving out of this flat area, and a kudu cow, there were a couple, three of them. And we were watching them for a minute and they lifted their heads and they kind of have this barking wolf when they're uh, spooked. And uh, our guide, Maxwell, who was sitting on the front of the bonnet, uh, said, there's a leopard here. That's the sound they make when they see a leopard. So these kudu cows did a 180 and Rick and Maxwell said, there's a leopard here. We're going to find it. So we actually circled this brush about one and a half times. And Maxwell finally saw the track, and we kind of push into the brush, and there, right off the bumper, is a big 140, 150-pound male leopard, big, broad skull, and he's just laying in the grass, just eyeballing us. So, you know, we're thrilled, but we're watching him. And he watched us for a few seconds, and then he did a bounce. I mean, he roared, and he bounced the Jeep, and, you know, your heart goes in your throat for a second, and Ricka yelled and slammed <laughs> She slammed the side of the door with her fist, and that was just enough to make the cat go, whoa, okay. <clears throat> but the story was, turns out that there were seven leopards who had territories on this concession, which I think was 14,000 acres, and uh, he was just, he was a new guy. Even though he's big, he's still establishing where he was right. in here. So he roared, he bounced, and then he kind of just walked away so my pictures of him are in the grass and then walking away because <laughs> there was no in between when he bounced us wow that's 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 all pretty pretty amazing stuff david i know um and i could sit here and talk to you about some of the stuff with the cats all night and there's 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 two very specific questions i want to get, get into but a, a couple things that you said there i want i do want to back up on um, because you, you, we actually covered this same topic a little bit during Compton's and that was Gunther Gable. Now, um, I actually saw him, it had to be in the, somewhere in the, the mid to late seventies. 
Um, but I actually did see him alive. For those that don't know who Gunther Gable, Gable Williams was, he was an animal trainer associated with uh, Ringling Brothers Circus. Um, and I think most of his it was all of his was all of his act around cats or was it I can't remember. It's just been too long. If it was all cats, I know that was kind of the big draw, but I can't remember if he worked with other animals or not. He did. Uh, when he came over here, he had a tiger act. He had uh, his elephants. And then he also did a, a mixed act where he had elephants, horses and tigers together. And then um, that was my inspiration to train leopards is uh, that would have been the winter of 1980. Uh, we all drove over to uh, the Miami Beach Convention Center after work one night to see Ringling in Miami. And at that time, the, he opened the show with the Tigers. And then during intermission, they put the cage back up. And then when the lights come on, there's Gunther with all the leopards. But, you know, I, I didn't go get a snack. I am just watching these leopards come into the arena and Gunther's directing their pedestals and, you know, it's all in the dark and you're just seeing these lift forms move. You know, there, there's an old circus book that said leopards move like smoke in the wind and they do. So after watching that, that was my inspiration. It's like, I've got to train these cats. I've never seen anything like that. But Gunther, uh, you know, so he trained the horses, tigers, elephants, leopards. Um, he actually one year trained uh, a male and female lion to ride on the big black Morgan horses. So, you know, if it lived to breathe, you know, Gunther could train it, but you know, he was, I know he probably loved the elephants best, but uh, you know, he's an exceptional cat trainer. Well, and it's, it, that just shows, you know, what impresses upon you most as a, as a, you know, a, a, a kid really would have been all I was when I saw him. Because I don't, I remember the cats. I don't remember much else about the performance. And obviously, I don't, you know, I, I don't remember a ton of it. I just, I remember things that he was doing around these these big cats that just, you know, amazed me as a as a kid. Now, your 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 dad and your and I, I I remember. I think I remember your your dad. He had kind of a nickname, and I think your mom did too. But it was something about uh, like Jungle Larry or something like that. That that was his television name. He was okay. on uh, he was on Cleveland TV um, on Channel Five for sixteen years. On um, it was a very popular uh, show called Captain Penny, and Captain Penny was another Northern Ohio icon. Ron Penfound was his real name. So you know, my dad and Ron worked together for for years on Channel Five, and then even after that, uh, you know, we still. I did, you know, after my dad passed away in 84, you know, prior to, he did all these media swings. So, uh, all the, all the big markets, whether it be, you know, Western Pennsylvania, all over Ohio, um, Indiana, Michigan, you know, the park would send out somebody who could be identified as a personality to go out. You know, you t of course you talk about the new ride, but also talk about what you did. So, sure. um, you know, after my dad passed away, I started doing a lot of those media swings as well. So, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, up in Michigan, Ohio area just by, by virtue of that. But you know, that, that was my dad's kind of stage name was jungle area. My mom was, was Safari Jane and how all that came about is going to be out in my mom's book. You know, I'll be out later this year, early next year. Well, if we won't, we won't ruin the surprise. I will actually look forward and pick up the book and read that. Cause I, and I don't remember if you told me that, yeah, I think you did. I think you mentioned both of them, you know, having the, uh, cause I remember something about them having, you know, their, their nickname or stage name, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I couldn't remember, couldn't remember your mother's. I just, for some reason, your dad's stuck in my head. Um, so for the for the for the rest of this 
David, I actually want to get a little bit of uh, get a little deep on you here because I've I've actually thought about this quite a lot uh, since you know we spoke at at Compton's and I tend to think about things sometimes way too much. But you know, one of the one of the things that I've always feel like I've struggled with and probably not communicated as well as I could is even though I am a hunter, I would still classify classify myself as as an animal lover uh, to a degree. I mean, you know, I've 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 owned dogs in my life, love dogs. I've I've uh, we own cats now, which are really my daughters, and yeah, they're okay. I'm not a big cat person, but you know, they they they're they depend on on us and. And we look after them. And, uh, you know, even as a, a kid growing up, I grew up on a farm. So we would find, and I won't go into the details, but you grow up on a farm and you're going to run across animals that for one reason or, reason or another, um, their, their, their mother's not there to take care of them. And I'll leave it at that. So, you know, I found rabbits before um, and I've raised those and then, and then turned them loose. Uh, actually, one year found a, a, a whitetail uh, fawn whose mother had been uh, had gotten killed. She actually got tangled up in a fence, and we just happened uh, to, to stumble across her fawn um, when we found her in the, in the fence. Um, so, and I raised that and, and actually raised it to the point where it could survive and, and, and turned it loose. So I've always struggled with that, but in hearing the things that you've done, it becomes even more... Um, it's kind of like you take it to the next level because you're taking animals that for all intents and purposes, they're still wild. They're not, they're not domesticated. Um, and you're spending a lot of time with them and you're spending time with animals that, I mean, if they decided to do so, they could, they could take you out. So uh, the first, the first part of this question is, you know, as, uh, as someone who spends that much time with animals, you know, how do you feel about, uh, the role of hunting when you're obviously a, a, a huge animal lover uh, and we'll get to the cat aspect of it in a minute, but just hunting in general, how do you feel about it? And when, when I know you've been approached by people that have asked you this question before, what's your answer to them when they ask you, how can you, how can you hunt and take an animal's life when you obviously love and care so much about animals? Well, I think, I can come at this from a different perspective because I didn't grow up a hunter. So, you know, starting this, you know, in, in my 30s, 20 years ago, uh, I think people can identify with that because it's not a cultural thing with me. It was, you know, kind of an elective choice in adulthood. And, you know, when you explain to people that you, as a hunter, you become a participant in the natural system. And it's anyone who says hunting's not in our DNA is kidding themselves and everybody around them because it is, you know, we, we developed these, these skills, you know, like the other predators eyes in front of our face, you know, not on the side of our skull. So, you know, that, that alone is the focus. That's what's in front of you. You're not worrying about 360. All you care about is what's in, in front of you. So this is how we have become hunters. You know, this, this, you know, it goes from reaching out for a piece of fruit to, you know, building a spear or building an arrow. Everything is happening right in front of you. And you learn to 
accept this. Me, it was accepting that I always felt that something was missing. You know, I, I enjoy being in nature, you know, now that I'm, uh, you know, got a lot of camera gear, you know, I'm trying to find the time to spend more time out there. Um, because I, I'm learning to love photography more than I did before. But as a photographer, you're an observer. As a hunter, you're a participant. And then when you take that another step further, Steve, that, you know, the animal rights folks want uh, the public to believe every time we go in the woods, we kill something. And we all know that is not true, especially if you're a bow hunter and especially if you're a traditional bow hunter. It just does not happen that way. So, you know, when you let folks know, most of the time I come home empty-handed. You know, I just wrote that piece in, in TBM called Empty Cooler Hunts. That's most of my life and it's a lot of other folks too that most of the time there's not meat on ice you it's the stuff that's why i wrote in this piece it's the stuff that happens when you're not actually dropping the string on something and sometimes those are you know the most interesting experiences and that's what i try to convey in that piece and and when i when i talk to folks that it's it's the experience of being there but not as an observer as a participant because it's different because you know when we sit in a ground blind or we sit in a, a tree stand whether it's four hours or you know a lot of us know what's what a 10 or 12 hour sit is like you're going to see a lot of neat stuff if you're paying attention and those are the experiences that 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 you bring home you know one day i was you know sitting out in the big cypress a couple of years ago and wasn't seeing any deer and I saw something move in the grass down below me and it was this enormous bobcat and you know I wish I would have had a good camera but I just took out my cell phone and I got this great video of this bobcat walking by me and he finally looks up spots me and studies me and and carries on so you know that was my memory for the day when you when you tell people those types of stories they're like oh okay I kind of get that. That is, it's not all blood and guts it's just it's being there and the things that happen when you are there but, you know, by the same token, it's having the time for these conversations. You know, when, when uh, I used to, you know, when I was at Naples Zoo, uh, we started this tour at night called Night Eyes. And I basically had about three hours with folks, one-on-one, walking around the zoo, looking at the animals in the dark, and basically storytelling. And I, you know, I would tell them, I, I hunt, and here's why, and here's some of the things that happen. And I would not have had those experiences if I was not a hunter. You know, um, a couple years ago, you know, Don Thomas wrote a, a book, a non-hunting book, Mon- Montana's Peaks and Mountains and Streams. I might have butchered the title there. But, um, you know, Don Don said in the foreword, you know, some of these, you know, I won't lie, some of these things in here happened because I was hunting. And I'm not going to take away from that, that I learned this about these animals, you know, when I had a longbow in my hand. So that was his disclaimer right from the start. But, you know, a lot of us can say that, you know, we've, we've had these experiences while we were in the woods with a bow or whatever in our hand. But it's also a dose of realism, you know, when you have time to talk to folks that, you know, a deer in the wild that becomes, you know, backstraps on the grill has gone through a lot less stress than a cow in a slaughterhouse. You know, we were up at Cedar Point, you know, we got our cat meat from Sandusky Dressed Beef. And it was, you know, right on the outskirts of town, but still in town, in Perkins Township. And you knew the nights they were killing. Because at one time I lived in an apartment near there. And when you drove home with the windows down, you knew it was killing night. And, and the you know, cows are cows, but they're not stupid. And that 
has to be an incredibly stressful experience for an animal, you know, in a slaughterhouse. It's how most of us get our food that don't hunt. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's a whole lot easier being a deer hunter, I think, than a cow or something in a slaughterhouse because, you know, I've been there and it's, it's, it's not a pretty thing. And so have I. I mean, I, like I said, I grew up on a farm and that was, you got exposed to, to, you know, that aspect of the circle of life, we'll call it pretty quick. Um, and I will tell you, you know, you mentioned the, our DNA were, were coded, you know, to be a hunter. And I agree with that. Um, but I would also tend to, I think some of us are more, uh, attuned to it or, or drawn to it. You know, my, nobody in my family hunted, um, but it was it was a, an itch that I wanted to scratch for as long as far back as I can remember, uh, and I I can't tell you where I got that bug, but it was just it was always there, um, and I, I I would also agree with the you know some of the other things that you said. I can tell you that each year there's always something that that I get to experience while I'm in the woods hunting that I otherwise would not have gotten a chance to experience that in many ways sticks with me as much or more than a successful hunt. Um, and it can be something very simple. You know, I've had, I've had, uh, I've had chipmunks, you know, standing on my, on my boots while I was sitting in a, a natural blind before. Um, I've had squirrels actually that were accustomed to using my, my, my tree stand platform, uh, as a as an eating station, sit and eat, uh, you know, acorns and hickory nuts between my feet. Um, I've seen families of raccoons coming through the woods and and stopping playing with each other. And you know, I know a lot of people say, "Well, you 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 should have taken them out." They you know they they ruined the, the the turkey population and all this stuff. But you know, all I want to do is just sit there and watch them and watch the the little ones playing with each other, just like, you know, brothers and sisters do. Um, and I could have sat and watched them for hours. Um, in fact, I think, uh, last year I pulled out my video camera and actually got video of them for probably close to 30 minutes, as long as, you know, they were close enough that I could, I could record them. So I definitely get what you're, you're saying there. I, you know, uh, I think you've read, we'll, we'll talk about him cause he's not here. Have you read Nick's book? Yeah, I reviewed it for TBM. I think it was in the That's last right. issue it came out. Yeah. That's right. I remember y'all talking about that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, his his story uh, in that book, Georgia, I think he called it Georgia Boo Boo. Um, he did. He did. I remember that. That whole experience, I would, I would, I can honestly tell you that looking back on that now, I would have traded everything about that entire season for that one uh, experience to to have it all unfold. And I couldn't see what Nick could see, but I could hear what was going on. I had a good idea what was going on. And then to walk up and see Nick just, uh, he was like a kid. He was so excited. He didn't know, he didn't know what to say or do and actually be there and be a part of that and have that same bear run by me, you know, within four foot. I mean, I, I literally, I think he said, and I told him I could have, I could have punched him in the butt with my bow when he ran by me and we were both on the ground. I mean, I wouldn't trade anything for, for that experience. I mean, it, it, it was just fantastic. And it's something that both he and I will remember, you know, till we're on our deathbed. Um, and nothing died, 
You know, it was, there, sure. were, there was, there was no, it was a hunt, but there was no success that day in the terms of bringing something home with you other than the memories. But man, the memories, that's what it's all about. Um, anyway, so I get what you're, I get what you're saying there. Um, yeah. now I do want to put a second part to that question and, and make it a little bit more personal for you from a perspective of how does that relate to um, big cats for you? Uh, because you obviously spend a lot of time with big cats. Most of the big cats that in some capacity can be hunted. Um, you know, how, how do you feel about that? Is that something you would ever want to do? How do you feel about others doing it? Um, and is there any, you know, any words of wisdom or, or uh, advice you would give to others that maybe are asked that same question? Let's see. Deep breath. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I threw a lot at you there. I'm sorry. No, because I, actually I, I was thinking about this uh, driving from job to job today. Um, you know, think about if we broach this topic, which we need to and we should because, you know, you know up until, you know, just a couple of years ago, cats, cats were my life. Would I hunt a cat? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, bears, you know, I'm looking right now over my right shoulder, and I've got a full-size body mount of a black bear from Canada. And would I do it again? I've thought about that. I might or I might not. Um, but, you know, if I do another bear hunt, it's going to be spot stock, not from a tree stand and, and, and not over bait. Uh, but he's a beautiful animal. I take nothing, nothing away from that. It was an awesome awesome experience up there in the bush in Canada. Uh, but, but for the cats, you know, I know people that have, have done it and some would do it again. And some say, you know, I've, that was it. I, that, I needed one cougar. I needed one lion. I needed you know, one bobcat, one leopard or whatever. And, and some folks really have that, um, with, with the cougar thing. I, I think the, the addiction, um, you know, from talking to some people and, reading so many pieces about it it's not about shooting the cat it's about the dogs you know people that chase cougars are into the experience so even you know there's guys who you know uh, you know don talks a lot about catch and release you know the cougars up there and that's not the one we wanted we could have but we didn't so we you know leashed up the dogs and everybody had had a nice day and there's a time where you are going to drop the string on it but for 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 me you know Probably not because I just feel like I understand cats, you know, a lot better than the average person. I, I definitely have more of a connection, even though, you know, it was in the outside the wild, not inside the wild. But, you know, just the, the times that I've, you know, been to Africa and seen cats in the wild, I, I'm not thinking hunting. Now, the times I've been on, you know, photo safaris when I was the talent when I was at Naples Zoo and, you know, they used me or my brother's name, um, Tim, to, you know, help sell the tours, go to, you know, wherever with Dave or Tim. Um, when I'm on those photo safaris and, you know, planes game, steps broadside, you know, my in my mind, there's a laser behind the shoulder. You know, it's just that's that's where I am as a hunter. But, you know, you talk to people and you know, you, 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 you drop the A bomb, the African bomb. Yeah. I went to Africa and hunted and automatically because of so much negativity, 
on, on social media or, or, or just regular network TV about trophy, they automatically assume you went there to hunt elephants or lions. And I'm, no, I went there and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hunting dikers and gemsbuck and kudu and things like that. Oh, okay. And somehow there's an acceptance over that, you know, and we all know, Steve, dead is dead. You know, so you really, you can't decry one and not the other because it's all, it's all still hunting. But for some reason, when you say you've just gone over there to, you know, pursue planes game, there's a hall pass. And then the second hall pass this is another thing I was thinking about when I was tooling around today, Steve, is, you know, we talked about how, how I approach hunting with the non-hunter. I have gotten so many hall passes from people that you could see when I mentioned that I hunt, their hackles start to go up. But then when you say you bow hunt, their shoulders go down. Every single one of them, Steve. Every single one of them. Yes. And you know why? Every one of them that you can tell the shoulders went down, they relax. Oh, the animals have a chance. Every single time without fail, without fail. So that's that. I think that's the hall pass that we bow hunters get is that, you know, we're inside the animal's self-defense mechanism. You know, we're not shooting things from 100 yards away and they don't even know you're there. You know, that's why I, I don't care about gun hunting. You know, I, I shot a hog, I think, in 2012. I haven't picked up a rifle since uh, because a hog didn't even know I was there. And that's, you know, that was my end of gun hunting. It's like, you know, there's, it's not there. It's not there for me. So, but for the non-hunter, yep, you, you definitely get a hall pass because they feel that we as archers, the animal has a chance because we're so close. And even the, even the layman knows that you've got to get close with the bow and you're inside that zone where the animal can detect you if you mess up. So that, that's an interesting perspective I've gotten speaking with non-hunters. But, you know, as we've been, you know, kind of the theme of this evening is, you know, the things that happen when you're not dropping the spring. You know, even though I came home with some, you know, nice animals from Namibia, the coolest experience for me was we were driving out one morning and, and, um, this is at the Sandveld Ranch, um, six hours north of Inhook. And, you know, Don's been there, Denny Sturgis, so many people have been there because the Silliers are just such great people. But, uh, Wayne, um, well, the son at 20, he was 21 at the time, youngest PH in Namibia. Um, and now he's, you know, he's in his thirties and still might be the youngest. But, um, but one morning his dad, Alan, drove us out to to the blind and he stops the truck and says you want to take a walk who's going to say no to alan silly or saying let's take a walk in the bush in namibia and we get out and walk to the front of the uh, truck and there's a drag mark across the road he goes there's a kill in here you want to go find it (laughs) absolutely i do so, and, and my brother, Tim does not hunt, but he went as a, uh, you know, paid the non-observer daily rate. So, you know, we bail out and, you know, Alan sends the, the Bushman out and we're weaving through the brush and following the drag and we're getting into the thick stuff. And, you know, if you've never been, Namibia looks like the brush country of Southern Texas. It's just a massive, you know, tight brush and thorns. So we're weaving our way through this and, you know, Alan and the Bushmen, they don't get hung up. You know, me and Tim are, you know, pulling the thorns off our shirts. You know, we're just, we're just the damn Yankees there trying to figure out how to walk like you're supposed to walk in Africa. But, uh, you know, then we come to the gut pile and, um, it was, the kill was eviscerated and, slightly buried and dirt over it and then we come to the kill itself and it's a yearling kudu and um, just that classic where the cats start the haunches had been eaten out you know the good muscle meat like we have in a roast that's right. that's where they started 
So we're standing there and, you know, I'm just like a kid. How many people get to track to what turned out to be a leopard's kill with Bushmen and Alan Silliers? I'm in seventh heaven. You know, this is the best part. <laughs> this is the best part of the hunt. So, you know, Alan speaks the San language and they're talking back and forth. And then, you know, Alan's interpreting. And I said, what's going on? He said, it's a female leopard. She's got two cubs and they're about a year old. And these guys know that just from... I mean, in seconds, they're telling him this. And this is just a cacophony of not only their tracks, but all the different Plains game species that are there. It's just, you know, it's a proliferation of tracks. It's just, you look at it and it's an absolute mess. You know, it's like you took a giant sack of animal footprints and just threw them on the ground. But these guys are just picking this up in milliseconds because that's the life they live. And, and these guys, they just grew up tracking. You know, they start off, you know, if they're, uh, you know, they have to know the animal, you know, if they've been hunting, which, you know, they, you know, the Bushmen still hunt with bows and a lot of these guys know that. And just by, you know, just being there and working on a hunting concession, you know, they're taking their natural skills and get to apply them every single day. So it's just, and that's, that's another thing, Steve, that I convey to the non-hunter, to the skeptic. It's bringing home those stories, those memories that happened while I was in the middle of doing everything else. Wow. That's that's a lot to take in. Um, and here's uh, another segue, if not to interrupt you. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. No, just, Go ahead. You know, because I, I, send, I tend to get sidetracked. So, you know, keep, keep me on the straight and narrow as, you, <laughs> as the host. That's your job. But the cat hunting thing, um, you know, because I've been there and I know people and I know how they think when the whole, you know, we call it Cecil Alliance, really Cecil Alliance. That's how it's pronounced over there. Right, right. Uh, named after Cecil Rhodes, who, you know, started a lot of the, you know, what was Rhodesia, you know, uh, but mistake is naming that cat. How many lions are hunted every single year, you know, in Namibia, South Africa, Tanzania, wherever. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. But here's a cat who had a name and, you know, that's where it started to snowball. But, you know, as a hunter and you know when you know i watched that piece on network news where they basically devoted an hour to this and you know all this nonsense about how this lion was lured out of the game park onto private land and seconds later they contradicted himself because at one point he had a radio caller and the telemetry was showing him going across these railroad tracks as if railroad tracks are a boundary for a lion, back and forth all the time. That was just part of his territory. So, you know, that lion was following his pattern, whether he got lured with, you know, a dead zebra or a warthog or not, that was part of that lion's territory. But I had to, you know, um, answer so many questions about that lion. You know, it was just, it got so out of hand by people who just don't understand the process. And, you know, for the folks that live, in the parks and make their living as guides, you know, obviously a line like that is really important for tourism, but for the folks living day to day, you know, you get outside the park and you have a conversation, you know, in Tanzania with the Maasai, you know, they're not big lion fans. You know, I mean, these are cats who, you know, you've got to pen up your animals at night or lions or hyenas or leopard, they're going to take them or they're going to take your kid. So for the average person living in Africa, yeah, they don't, uh, they don't, it's not the same as the way we think of these cats. So these people protesting Walter Palmer on street corners have no idea how Africa works. 
Well, it's funny that you're saying some of this. I've got a a, a gentleman that's um, – while there's so many things you've said here tonight, David, I could go back and forth half the night. Um, we've got a local uh, traditional archery club here in Gainesville. It's It's – 30 minutes from my house. Dee Dee is a regular participant. You mentioned Dee Dee earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and this other gentleman, um, in fact, I've talked to Dee Dee. He's going to be on the show at some point. We just, scheduling has just been horrendous. Um, but there's another gentleman uh, in the club who regularly uh, does missionary work in Africa and has spent time with the Maasai tribe. And, you know, that's we're going to we're going to get him on the show and, and talk about some of that because, you know, he's actually set and and um, straightened arrows with uh, members of a Maasai tribe and, wow, and, had, wow. and, ha- and had them critique his work, so awesome. to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's that's something you'll probably enjoy whenever we can get around to getting that. Absolutely. Done. But to go back to what you're saying, I've never. I don't guess we've had a guest on and really talked about some of this stuff and really led down that, that path to Africa. We've definitely had some people on that have hunted Africa. Uh, Tom Jurgensen obviously has hunted Africa. Um, Jerry Russell, who's been on a couple of episodes has, has guided and hunted in Africa. Personally, I can tell you, I really have no desire whatsoever to hunt Africa. Um, It just is not something that's ever appealed to me. And part of that is because I think there's just so much I would like to see here in the States. It'll probably take me a lifetime to achieve that. So it's just one of those things. It's I I don't know that I would ever get around to it kind of thing. That said, um, and I constantly go back to just what a um, disease I think, you know, social media has become. And I'm as guilty of it because I'm on it more than I should be myself but you you bring up things like Cecil the Lion you you know you see the the negative posts that that get shared about trophy hunters and I hate that term but um, that's what they're always labeled about someone that killed a, a giraffe or an elephant or what or a lion or whatever that is in Africa and even amongst hunters themselves people can't get on the same page you've got you know some that are that are kind of like me and it's just agnostic it's just it's 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 a natural resource to me um and then you've got others that are condemning these hunters because they they went and shot an animal in africa whichever whatever it is uh i don't know that i could sit here and say that i place more value on one species of animal than another unless it's a situation where they're endangered and obviously i'm a concern you know i'm I'm a conservationist i don't want to wipe any species off the planet that's just ridiculous but i try to look at it more from a a a level-headed approach i guess is the best way to put it if that hunter followed the rules, bought the tags, did everything that they were supposed to do, harvested that animal legally, more power to them, and I'll stand behind them and I'll support them 110%. I will also say that what those masses that are sitting there screaming about don't understand, it's not like they went out and shot this animal, took the hide or the head or whatever they wanted, and and left it to rot. There is not exactly. a, there yes, is not a exactly. piece of that of that animal that is not used by the locals 
in Africa. I know this. I've talked to enough people about it. And they depend on it. Not only do they depend upon that, they depend on the money from the hunters that are coming over there and hunting and hiring the guides, hiring the, the trackers, uh, hiring the people to take care of the, 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 the game once it's, it's down. I mean, they don't have much else to, to, to survive on. And all of that gets lost. It all becomes, you know, Africa's Bambi, for lack of a better term. Um, right, right. And I, I, I just sit and watch this, some of this stuff in amazement. And I guarantee you, most of those people, either the same day or the same week, will go to a grocery store. They'll buy a piece of meat under cellophane and think nothing about it and how that is no different. In fact, it's, in my opinion, it's worse because you're 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 minima, minimalizing that animal's life because you didn't see it die. True, that's true. You know, I I think I managed to weave this into one of my book review columns. Is you know somewhere someone ate that trophy. You know I have zero interest in honey elephants. None. Me too. But, uh, me either. But in 24 hours, that animal is reduced to nothing. It's gone. There are bones for the hyena if they're still there. Um, so that's that's the other thing is, you know, people just, as you were saying, they, they think you just bring home the, the horns and, and, and the hide. And no, that's not, a, you know, if we all could bring home the meat, we would. It's just, it's the regulations don't support that at this point. But uh, yeah, I mean, you, you know, when, when you're in hunting camp, generally, uh, you know, the good places will, will age the meat. So we probably were eating the meat that the guys the week before us took. And the guys that came in after us were probably, I think one of the only animals we ate that either me or the other, there's only two of us in camp that week that were hunting me and this guy Keith from Idaho. Um, I think we ate his gemsbuck because they were getting low on gemsbuck at the time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, otherwise, and it's just, uh, I, I will take, you know, kudu or eland fillet over anything else, over anything else, any day of the week, any day of the week. And I've, I've honestly can say I've never, I've never tried either one of them. Um, maybe one day I, I kind of doubt it. Cause again, it's just, it's just not something that, that, that I'm, I'm drawn to. Um, but you know, while we're on the subject, and I do want to, I do want to think about wrapping this up, David, I, I told you, you know, we'd try to keep this somewhere around between an hour, an hour and a half, but, I will go even further on my cellophane comment earlier. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you right now, I don't have data to back up what I'm going to say, but common sense is really all you need. When I hear some of the people that uh, attack hunters and whether you want to call them, and I don't think most of it is the anti-hunting crowd. I think it's just most general public that don't understand um, and they want to desensitize the way they are directly or indirecting having an effect on animals' lives, but they want to look down upon me because I'm an active participant. And when I say that, it's it goes beyond just the, um, I cooked a steak on the grill tonight, but you can't shoot that deer. I bought mine from the, 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 the grocery store. But it even goes further than that for me. It's the did you did they do these people ever stop and think about when they're spending the day at the mall, or they're walking into their um, 
their their condo or their apartment building or their townhouse um, when they're driving on the interstate? Are they thinking about how the things that they do on a daily basis displaced and probably caused the death of more animals in a much less um, humane manner than hunting does simply by the activities that they choose to participate in and the things that they promote, again, with all of the construction that goes on. And I'm not saying it's bad. Understand, I'm not saying any of this is bad. We have to have these things. Humans have to have, you know, the, the, we have to have the necessities. We have to have homes. We have to have, we have to be able to go to work. We, but what I'm saying is they don't put the two and two together that they have directly had an impact upon an animal's life. But yet they tell me that I, you know, I can't go out and, and, directly hunt or take an animal's life but it's okay for them to indirectly affect does that make sense i, I feel like i'm rambling here and no no you're, you're not across. at all steve and and it, I'm, I'm totally on board with you any sensible person would be because everything we do uh, there's going to be follow through on it you can't you can't help that there's ramifications whether you build a house a road a shopping mall or whatever it does displace it does kill animals and then take this step further you know, I have nothing against somebody who's vegan or vegetarian. If you're doing it for health reasons, I'm 100% behind you. Now, if you're saying you're doing that because you don't want to be cruel to animals, then you're disillusioned because, and you know, you talk about data. There is data that shows the species that when that field gets plowed, you're killing garter snakes, box turtles, deer fawns, ground nesting birds. A lot of that stuff dies. So, like it or not, you've got blood on your salad. Unless you're unless you're eating, you know, uh, what we call poke salad. You know what poke salad is. <laughs> you're in the south. I mean, unless you're unless you're going out and foraging for things in the forest, and then you could even say, well, you're 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 stealing the animal's food. <laughs> I mean, it's just you could get as ridiculous as you want to with this stuff. But I I definitely agree with you. Um, uh, and I, I, I do know, um, in fact, my, my wife's sister is a, is a self-proclaimed, uh, vegan and that's, that's the whole reason why. And I just, I, it just baffles me that you really are not, you're so focused on yourself that you really can't see the big picture. And that's really to me what it comes down to. I agree. So, all right, man, I, I really don't want to leave this, this conversation on a bad note. It's been a, it's been an absolutely fantastic discussion, David. Um, you know, I, I, we always tell uh, a lot of the guests that, you know, we'll, we'll probably reach out to you again and have you on the, on the show again, but I'm definitely going to do it with you. Uh, once the, the book is out, I've had a chance to, to, to read it myself, um, and I'm sure something else will come up along the way. We'd probably want to want to get you back on here. Um, and I am going to ask you for one more favor. Sure. Um, sometime over the next day or two, if you can, just drop a Facebook message to me or you can send me an email. I'll, I'll give you my, my email address. But um, all the books that you've mentioned today, and I'll try to help you remember which ones we've mentioned today. Um, sure. You know, just help me with the, the, the name of the book and the author and make sure that I include um, all of those in the show notes and maybe links to Amazon or something where people can go out and try to find these books. But um, I know you've mentioned some really good ones. And to be honest, I don't think other than Jay Campbell's book, you've mentioned one that I've actually read. So I've got a lot of reading to catch up on. So I do thank you for that too. My pleasure. 
Well, folks, we're going to we're going to wrap it up with that again, David. I really do appreciate you taking the time for everyone out there listening. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Uh, Please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. If you haven't already, please subscribe and we will look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Take care, everyone.